DiscerningHearts.com presents The Way of Life, Reflections on the Teachings of St. John Paul II with Dr. Carson Holloway. Dr. Holloway is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Nebraska at Omaha and a former William E. Simon visiting fellow in Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. He's the author of Magnanimity and Statesmanship, The Right Darwin, Evolution, Religion, and the Future of Democracy, All Shook Up, Music, Passion, and Politics, and The Way of Life, John Paul II, and The Challenge of Liberal Modernity, the book on which this program is based. The Way of Life, Reflections on the Teachings of St. John Paul II with Dr. Carson Holloway. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. In the last segment, we were discussing the importance of the Declaration of Independence as a moral touchstone to the foundations of this country. Mm -hmm. Now we jump ahead at 50 years to a Frenchman who would come and do a study of the United States that really is a a classic, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Alexei de Tocqueville's Democracy in America is a French nobleman and politician who came to America in the 1830s to write up a report for the French government on the American penal system, uh, but he ended up writing something that we now, most of us, take to be a lot more important than that report, which is Democracy in America, a book that he wrote to really help France and Europe understand democracy as he thought as the wave of the future and how to make it work properly. And his concerns at the broadest level, I think, are in harmony with those of the popes, that's part of the reason I brought him into this conversation, so to speak, with the pope's work. Um, Tocqueville is both impressed with democracy, its power, and its justice in some respects, its power in the sense that he thinks it's going to sweep the world, but he's also concerned that democratic conditions might turn out to pulverize human dignity and freedom. So his concern is with managing democracy in such a way that it will be compatible with human dignity and human human freedom. And he thinks that the Americans, in, in his time, in the 1830s, have understood how to do that, and that the Europeans don't understand. And so he's going to write this big book, Democracy in America, to explain to the Europeans how democracy really works when it's working the way it should work, as in America. Set the stage, the 1830s, and where is he coming from? Well, he's coming from a France that has been suffering from the turmoil of the French Revolution, and Tocqueville himself was an aristocrat. And this is part of what gives him such a valuable perspective, I think. He comes from an aristocratic family, and he understands aristocracy very well, the turn of mind, the habits, the kind of social customs. And one of the touchstones of his book is the comparison of democracy with aristocracy, the old aristocratic world. And so he's very astute at developing these comparisons and of bringing to light the the strengths and weaknesses of both social states, as he calls them, the democratic social state and the aristocratic social state. So part of that heritage as an aristocrat allows him to see all the weaknesses in democracy and its bad tendencies, which he brings to light not to reject democracy. He goes out of his way to say, I'm not an enemy of democracy. I don't believe it can be rolled back. In fact, part of the purpose of his book is to kind of rebuke some of the French right-wing aristocratic types who think, well, if we just get into power, we can do away with all this democracy. Tocqueville's saying to them, no, you can't do it. It's the cat's out of the bag. We're not going back now. But we need you, aristocrats, 
to help tame democracy and, and guide it in the right direction. So he's very critical of democracy in some ways uh, with a view to showing how those defects can be corrected. And again, he's, I mean, he sees defects in American democracy, but for the most part, he's full of praise because the Americans have found ways to tame the wilder instincts of democracy to a considerable extent through religion, um, which is another place where he kind of agrees with the Pope, I think. For many of us, we grew up thinking democracy is it. Mm -hmm. It is the gold standard. Mm -hmm. And yet, for most of human history, democracy, from the Greeks to the Romans to many other cultures, became feared Mm -hmm. because of some of its dangerous tendencies. And what would those be? Well, that's right. I mean, certainly the ancient democracies that you mentioned were thought to be highly unstable. And that's one of the reasons that even the American founders were so critical of democracy. I mean, some... Times, and they were Tocquevillian in this, to this extent. They were criticizing democracy with a view to instituting it. Um, sometimes people who go back and read the founders think they were enemies of democracy. They intended to subvert or frustrate democracy. I don't think that's what they intended. They certainly don't talk like that's what they intended. They talk like they're trying to figure out the defects of democracy so as to correct them. In the ancient world, the main defect of democracy was an instability that arose from class warfare. When you live in small democracies, like in the ancient city-states, and this even happened to some extent in the American states after the Revolution, it's easy, and this is the argument of James Madison in Federalist Number 10, it's easy for the society to split into just two basic factions, the many who are poor and the rich who are few. And the many have the votes to run the government. And what they do is they try to take over the government and expropriate the wealth of the few, which the few take as an attack on them, and they organize opposition, and eventually you get some kind of civil war that then results in temporarily anarchy, and then that you know turns into some kind of tyranny or an oligarchy uh, where the few rule. And so, yeah, the founders are very concerned about finding ways to allow the many to rule, but to also protect the rights of property and to protect people against what Madison called democratic factions or majoritarian factions that are determined to violate the rights of others. Um, Then when you get into modern democracy, modern large-scale democracy, I think Tocqueville is useful again because I think he comes along and sees all kinds of problems that the founders didn't really even see um, because democracy perhaps hadn't developed as far or because, as Tocqueville points out, the founders didn't really come from an aristocratic background. You know, they didn't have the same appreciation for the old ways that he did, which allowed him to see certain weaknesses in the democratic way of life. So what are the defects that Tocqueville saw with democracy? Well, um, let me preface my answer to that by saying that the reason I explore this in my book on the Pope's thought is because, as I said in our previous discussion, there's a lot that's sound in the philosophy of the American founding. There's a lot that's wholesome. You've got this basic belief in human rights, human dignity, rooted in the laws of nature and nature's God. On the other hand, we have to take seriously the fact that the Pope presents Evangelium Vitae as a criticism of the modern Western democracies, and that includes America. Um, It's clear if you look at the work that he is critical, especially of modern industrialized societies. And he speaks of those that make human rights their boast are the ones that are violating human rights with regard to the right to life, especially of the weak and vulnerable. So, you have to raise the question, how did we get from point A to point B? How did we get from a relatively sound public philosophy at the time of the founding to this 
popular corruption of political culture that we see today that so concerns the Pope. And I try to make the argument in my book that Tocqueville is the one who can point the way. No matter how sound the Declaration of Independence may be, there are certain things about democratic society that tend to erode certain important moral customs or moral principles, let's say, that are essential to sustaining a sound democracy. That's kind of the the problematical character of democracy, according to Tocqueville, is that it relies on certain non-democratic institutions, like religion, for example, to preserve it and to make it good, but it also tends to erode those institutions. And so that I go on in the chapter to talk about the various ways in which Tocqueville thinks democracy tends to erode the conditions of human dignity and human freedom in the modern world. That connection with religion in the American situation actually was founded to be of an important sustaining Mm -hmm. attribute. It was. And again, you wonder if the founders took religion so seriously, if the early Americans took religion so seriously, why has America become less religious? Um, I think I, I would actually talk about that as well as two other things that I get from Tocqueville. When we think about Evangelium Vitae, the, the Pope says three important pillars of the culture of death would be the eclipse of God or the loss of a sense of God, um, individualism, where people think they're only responsible for themselves and have no obligations to others, and also he speaks of hedonism, this kind of concern with material prosperity. And as it happens, if you go read Tocqueville's Democracy in America, he thinks that what he calls the democratic social state or democratic conditions um, foster all of those things. And Tocqueville certainly is famous for having observed that the Americans take God very seriously, yet he also saw that democratic, the democratic social state tended to erode the seriousness of people about God or erode belief in God. He, he observes, for example, that democratic people by their nature tend to be very rationalistic because they're responsible for themselves, they have experience of handling their own problems without recourse to authority, and he says this transfers over into all of their thoughts with regard to everything. They're highly skeptical. And so even as the early Americans were religious, he saw the beginnings of a kind of skepticism that might erode religious belief. Um, and he does, he makes this argument, I should say, by way of comparison with aristocracy, and I think that's pretty provocative and helpful. He points out that in an aristocracy, there's a hierarchy of authority in the society so people are used to that idea. Moreover, most people are uneducated and poor, whereas mm-hmm. the elite is highly well-educated. He says, under those conditions, it's natural for people to believe in intellectual authority and to accept on trust what they're taught by certain authorities. Um, and that makes them receptive to the religion that's established into their, in their societies. Americans are not like that. And it's not just Americans. It's democratic peoples generally tend to become more and more skeptical. And as time wears on, this can erode the religious belief that's necessary to sustaining human dignity. Tocqueville also points out that Americans incline toward pantheism, um, the belief that God is the world, as opposed to a transcendent God who is apart from the world. Obviously, the Christian teaching is that God is radically separate from the world because he existed first and he created the world. Pantheism would have us believe that God is somehow infused in the world and in everything. And Tocqueville's says something that's kind of cryptic, but I try to work it out in my book. He says, it's essential that everybody who believes in true human greatness unite and do battle against pantheism. And he doesn't explain why pantheism is a threat to greatness, but I think we can understand it if we think about it. And we can see how it relates to the Pope's concerns too. Pantheism divinizes everything. It says God is in everything. So it's sort of 
goes hand in hand with a kind of absence or at least lowness of moral standards. I mean, if everything that everybody does, if every feeling is equally godlike, then there's no standard of high aspiration to which you can appeal to. And so I think that's why Tocqueville understood pantheism as a threat to human greatness, because it takes away a transcendent standard to which we can aspire. Um, he also speaks about, by the way, he speaks about how democracy tends to lead to a kind of forgetfulness of God. He says, democracies are highly pragmatic places because people are all responsible for their own um, economic well-being. They have to make their own way. Business, enterprise, industry, these are the things that democracies are preoccupied with. And he says it comes to affect the language. And he says, little by little, the terrain of metaphysics and theology is, is seeded, right, or conceded, given away. So the language more and more reflects worldly concerns under democratic conditions, whereas in an aristocratic social state, there's more um, otherworldliness, so to speak. Um, and this is one of the reasons, I think, among others, that Tocqueville says later that democratic people should preserve religion as the most precious heritage from aristocratic times. It's something that they are in danger of losing, but at the same time, it's essential to protecting their respect for each other and their respect for the idea of rights. On that question, he and the Pope are on the same page. That's interesting that we should respect that religious tradition and, and keep that as a part of the fabric mm -hmm. of the democracy in order that tyranny, essentially, mm -hmm. would not ensue. Right, because it creates a higher standard that even the government must respect. Um, and he's, you know, the reason he wants us to maintain our religious traditions is because he's afraid that democracy so undermines a people's capacity for religion that if they lose the one they inherited, they may never get anything else back, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so we have to be very careful to nurture what's been handed, handed on to us. And history would demonstrate that he's correct. Well, I think so. I mean, we've, we have tended to, I think, in America, lose our religiosity gradually. I mean, certainly it's hard to see because America is more religious than a lot of other industrialized nations, but it doesn't seem like it gets replaced with anything, you know, and so we need to try to revitalize what we've been given, I think, more than just go off in the search of something new. On another point, I wanted to mention individualism. Remember, the Pope criticizes individualism as an underpinning of the culture of death because it allows us to disclaim responsibility for others. Well, Tocqueville notes that Democratic societies tend toward individualism. And again, he makes his argument by way of contrast with aristocracy. So aristocracy tends to bind people together. It binds the generations because it treats families as if they are little fatherlands that exist through time. There's always a downside to this. It goes along with the inequality. He says aristocracy, by the laws of primogeniture, which make property go to the eldest male, introduces a kind of inequality, but it keeps the family together in a particular place, and it becomes an identifiable institution through time. And so it links the generations. He says in, in uh, aristocracies, you find people who seriously are concerned with what was done by their great-great-grandfathers and who feel like they have serious obligations to their offspring yet unborn. Um, and again, aristocracy, because of the inequality of the social classes, creates a kind of solidarity within the social classes because people have a lot in common, but it also creates these links between the social classes because of the reciprocal obligations. And democracy just obliterates all that. Families become the nuclear family, which kind of come and go with each generation. Um, there really are no social classes in, in a democracy, so there's no 
sense of solidarity, not even among the rich, because the rich are constantly turning over and changing as fortunes are made and lost. And there's really no links of obligation among whatever you have as classes or what passes as classes, because everybody thinks he's a self-made man and doesn't owe anything to anybody else. So democracies, he thinks, are very powerfully individualistic. And so there's a kind of weakness there that leads toward what the Pope calls the culture of death. And then finally, the third thing I would mention is hedonism. The Pope thinks hedonism leads to the culture of death because we tend to think that, well, if our lives are uncomfortable, they must be lacking in dignity or goodness, and so we should consider doing away with ourselves. Or if we have other lives that impose a burden on us, make us have to work harder and have fewer pleasures to enjoy, well, that can't be good because pleasure is the highest thing. Well, again, Tocqueville says democratic peoples are susceptible to hedonism. And he says, you know, in America, the dominant taste is for easy pleasures and successes. But he's very careful that it's not just Americans, it's, it's democracy that leads to this. It's an interesting psychological insight. He says, what makes people preoccupied with something is not the easy possession of it, but the fear of having to lose it and having to work hard to get it in the first place. And so he says, aristocrats in an aristocratic social state have a lot of material goods, but they're not materialistic because to them it's just part of life. You know, this is something they've inherited, they've always enjoyed, and they don't really obsess about it. Um, conversely, the people in an aristocracy are not obsessed with material goods, uh, meaning the peasant class, because he says they don't know anything about it and they despair of ever getting it. And this makes them dwell in imagination upon the next life. I mean, peasants in an aristocracy are among the most pious people in the world because they have nothing to hope for from this life, right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to advance themselves through hard work or, or diligence or study or anything like that. They're locked into a certain place by the social class structures and the law. Um, and he says, again, democracy has great power, and it even has a kind of an appeal to justice because it does away with all those social class structures that limit people and just allows everybody to rise to the limits of their own ability. But what happens is, he says... That, that's good because the energy it unleashes, but the downside is you end up with a large middle class which tastes enough of the physical pleasures to want them, but not enough to be satisfied. And so most people are preoccupied with getting these things. They're very hedonistic in this sense. And so there's a way in which democracy has a weak spot, I think, from the standpoint of the Pope's analysis or putting the Pope's analysis of the culture of death together with Tocqueville's analysis of democracy. We see certain democratic tendencies in that direction. And again, to come back to the solution, I think maybe it's an oversimplification, but it goes in the right direction to say the unifying solution for both the Pope and Tocqueville is religion, and Christianity in particular. Because as Tocqueville points out, in relation to individualism, religion teaches people that they have obligations to others. In relation to hedonism, it teaches them that the body is not the highest thing, and so the pleasures of the body can't be the highest thing. And so in a way, I kind of think, and I argue this in the very last chapter, that you could view the Pope's criticism of the modern liberal societies in Evangelium Vitae and elsewhere as kind of a Tocquevillian undertaking. I mean, it's not, I'm not aware that a lot of other people have compared the Pope to Tocqueville in this respect, but I think that in Democracy in America, Tocqueville calls for a kind of enlightened statesmanship of democracy, which involves building up religion and reminding people of the spiritual nature of their souls. And it occurred to me as I worked on this project that well, if anybody was doing that, it was the Pope more than any other, any political statesman. Uh, so he might, more than anybody else, be able to lay claim to the mantle of Tocquevillian statesman of 
the 20th century and the early 21st century. Wow. It struck me when you were talking about democracy and how religion, and in particular Christianity, is a better foundation than other potential religions in the fabric of democracy. What is it about that Christian character? Well, I think, and here I'm, I don't want to get too beyond my expertise because I'm not a, an expert in comparative religion, but it seems to me that the thing that is somehow standing behind this concern with human dignity and human rights is the idea that you get from the Bible that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. I mean, that's in the first few chapters of the Bible, so it kind of is presented as foundational. Um, and it's something that is recurred to throughout the Bible. But even leaving that aside, the fact that it's there in the creation story um, immediately tells you that human beings are something um, extremely special. I'm not sure that that idea is solidly founded in other non-biblical religions, or even, say, in Islam. I'm not a student of Islam, but to the extent that I know about these things, you don't, I'm not aware of people who subscribe to that tradition talking about human beings being created in the image and likeness of God um, and being deserving of a certain kind of respect. And as a matter of, I, I am a little bit on solider ground here with history, with regard to history. The societies that we regard as free ones, modern liberal societies that have respect for individual rights, emerged in a Christian context, right? They emerged mm -hmm. in Christian countries, in European countries. Um, now, the secularist might say that they emerged in countries that to some extent had pushed Christianity away a little bit, right? That there had been a certain movement in a secular direction. And that may be true, but that does not negate the fact that it emerged from this soil, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it did not emerge elsewhere. So, you know, it hasn't really succeeded as much elsewhere as far as we can tell. I mean, there have been some places where you have liberal democracy, not in a European context, but it's always been kind of a rough road. And I think, you know, Tocqueville would counsel us to be wary of just cutting ourselves off from these traditions, which seem to be the basis of the kind of society that we've enjoyed. That's why in the 20th century, it becomes worrisome at best when that potential threads of that garment, of that of mm -hmm. that foundation are beginning to be pulled out mm -hmm. and elements from the Constitution to other type of laws or even just attitudes yeah. within the country concerning religion's place. Mm -hmm. Based on Tocqueville, see a reason to be concerned about that because when he describes the religion of the America he visited in the 1830s, he says, and he acknowledges the place of Catholics, by the way, Tocqueville uh, identified himself as a member of the Catholic Church, and he was sort of interested in the fate of Catholics in America. But generally, he just talks about the Christianity of America, and he says, you have all these different sects, meaning Christian sects, that profess different modes of worship, but they all agree on Christian morality, and they all teach the same thing universally on that question, and that is what is so useful in holding American democracy in check. He speaks in that context of religion as a, the first of America's political institutions. He says, you know, it doesn't directly make them free, but it teaches them how to use their freedom. And because of that universal agreement on Christian morality, he says, the majority, which has supreme power in a democracy in America, knows that it can't just do anything, that there are limits that it has to respect. Um, as he says in a nice phrase, he says, in America, 
I never heard the impious and detestable maxim that everything is permitted in the interest of the majority, mm -hmm. uh, which he says is a tyrannical maxim. He says it seems to be an, an idea invented in a time of freedom to legitimize every future tyranny. But to come back to your point, we'd have to be worried then because it's no longer the case that the Christian religions all profess the same morality. There seems to be a fragmentation um, in modern America in terms of the moral teaching so that it's not just the case that we worship differently, but we have, you know, kind of liberal sex and more conservative sex. Some profess a more severe morality, some profess a less strict morality. And I think that Tocqueville would think, well, that, uh, that undermines the certainty that people have about morality, which would serve as a useful uh, bright line that the majority is not supposed to cross in its dealings with people. How we got to a point where we would even consider that separation of religion. Now, it, not to be confused, and it, mm -hmm. you as a political scientist know this better than anyone else, I mean, that, that separation of church and state, mm -hmm. that was never meant necessarily then to be one that a separation of religion moral foundations within mm -hmm. the context of the state. That's right. In fact, I think um, the recently departed Father Newhouse was very good at pointing out that Separation of church and state does not mean separation of religion from public life. The founders would have envisioned religion as having a robust role in public life. And, and Tocqueville is very good on that as well because he very carefully emphasizes both things. He, in light of what we've already said, he teaches that religion has to inform America's politics for that politics to remain decent because when you take away religion, the majority will feel that it has a right to do anything. And that's just another form of tyranny. Tocqueville, another good remark, says, I don't care if one man or a million men hold the yoke. I feel enslaved if somebody's got me yoked. So, you know, it's important to have religion in public life and shaping the political discourse. But at the same time, Tocqueville says, religion is so powerful in America precisely because of separation of church and state. It allows religion to separate itself from the often obnoxious and irritating arms of the state and allows it to flourish on its own. He thinks religion became weak and hated in Europe precisely because it was attached to the ruling regimes. He has kind of a, I think, a pretty persuasive argument that when, when religion tries to benefit from the power of the state, it then becomes hateful to many people as an arm of the state, mm -hmm. and it also kind of attaches itself to political parties which rise and fall with different kind of political fortunes at different times. Whereas if it just divorces itself from all that, it has that natural power over the human soul because all human beings, he says, yearn for eternity. So there's a kind of natural openness to religion. I think Tocqueville would say man is naturally a religious being. So if the Americans were astute in the way they set up their institutions. They, they guaranteed a robust public role for religion by making sure it didn't have a governmental role. Maybe we put it that way. Fascinating. I wish we had more time. But we do in the next segment of The Way of Life, John Paul II and the Challenge of Liberal Modernity. Thank you, Dr. Holloway. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to The Way of Life, Reflections on the Teachings of St. John Paul II with Dr. Carson Holloway. To hear and or to download this discussion along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join us next time for... The Way of Life, Reflections on the Teachings of St. John Paul II with Dr. Carson Holloway.